0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. All right, what can I say? The greatest thrill of my life is standing behind that microphone with you
1: guys behind me.
2: I think what we have accomplished is just an amazing thing. My father used to say, you better learn how to do something else because this rock stuff ain't going to last.
1: I did weddings. I can remember sitting up all night and
3: learning Moon River because the bride requested it. And I walk over and say, I want to sit in. He said, Sure. You know. So I sat in, and it was a magical moment. I swear, I have never, I will never forget that moment.
2: There were not any big, real, real big venues. I mean, the Fillmore East was uh, the most sort of formal. I have know Steve since he was about fifteen,
1: and since then it's been the same thing. You know, what I mean, that's all we we ever talked about was we dreamed about the day when we could make a record. You know, we said, What's the matter with us? You know, we're as good as those guys. We're as good as those guys.
4: Welcome. I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. This is the podcast that lets you hear from the artists you love. Today, the focus is on Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. So let me introduce my co-host, Anita. Hi, Denny. You know, I'm so happy to talk about Bruce because
5: he's part of both of our pasts in a completely crazy, random way. Uh, 1974 was my first Bruce sighting. I was uh, living in Mexico and I came home for a couple of months to get a job and get some money. And I was living outside Philly in Levittown and I got a job at the Oxford Valley Mall at a unisex boutique. (laughs) That's so 74. And I got fired for letting a guy sell concert tickets in the store and he felt badly and he offered me a job with the White Dove Ticket Agency. And I had never heard of Bruce Springsteen. I was thinking that he meant Norman Greenbaum springsteen green bomb spirit in the sky spirit in the night you know i had no idea but i took the job and i took the posters and tickets to where i used to hang out and work up in new hope to john and peters and went to the first show at the state theater in new brunswick in new jersey uh it was april 19th 1974 it's a 500 seater it was half full and you know my head was blown my mind Mm. was blown Uh, they really did blow my head off. I mean, I had to look for the pieces of my skull on the floor of the theater. Second show, May 6th, Bucks County Community College or Buck U, my uh, alma mater. Uh, I took photos uh, standing on the side of the stage. It was just incredible. And then the third show was May 24th at the Trenton War Memorial, Return to Forever, which Korea opened. It was Bob Dylan's birthday. I think what, what a Bruce, memory, yeah. A well, memory. it's all in the book. But he he morphed into Bob that night. But as much as I loved the band and thought they were it, I you know had to return to Mexico. I wasn't, I didn't have a job with the band. I had no reason to hang out. And then five months later, he's on uh, Time and Newsweek. So I saw something. You saw something. I know you're going to talk about your first Bruce sighting uh, later. Great story. Yeah. But all these years later, I think we're still as much in love with everything that Bruce does as we were then all these years later. Don't you agree?
4: I agree. You know, Bruce's latest album is letter to you. And it's the 20th studio album. It's the first new studio album with the E street band since high hopes in 2014. Now what he did was assemble the E street band at his home studio. And that was November of 2019. And after four days, the album was finished. Bruce stated that this album was inspired partly by the death of his former bandmate in the Castiles, the first band Bruce was in, as well as the early days of the E Street Band. Now, the album was recorded live in studio with only minimal overdubs. It features three tracks that were originally written prior to Springsteen's 73 debut, Greetings from Asbury Park. Um, If I Was the Priest, Janie Needs a Shooter and Song for Orphans. I'll give you a little background here. If I Was the Priest has not previously been officially released by Springsteen, but was covered by Alan Clark, lead singer of the Hollies, on one of his solo albums. He also covered Born to Run, and the Hollies covered Sandy. They were one of the first bands to get into Bruce, even before Man for Man, believe in. And Warren Zevon reworked Janie Needs a Shooter for his 1980 album, Bad Luck Streak in Dancing School. Now, Anita, I think you have the story behind this. And uh, let me give full disclosure here. Uh, okay. You were engaged to Warren Zevon. So you yes. know the story.
5: I so, do know the story. Okay. And we'll,
4: I, we'll talk about, we're going to do a whole show on Warren down the road.
5: Because okay, but I do have the Janie and Jeannie story and how they became two different okay. songs. Uh, and I'll, I'll divulge that in a bit. Okay.
4: Divulge. divulge divulge okay <laughs> well why don't we set this up you okay. know what they're doing nowadays i'm finding more and more bands are doing trailers like movie trailers i don't know how many people get to hear them though because they you know they put them out on youtube or they put them out here but you know i'm like the tom petty trailer was great i don't know if you even saw it uh the bruce trailer is great all these bands coming out with trailers so you know what i thought i'd do let's play the trailer so you can see how it was uh, being positioned I'm in the middle of a
0: 45-year conversation with these men and women I'm surrounded by. Faded pictures in an old scrapbook. I started playing the guitar because I was looking for someone to correspond with. And after all this time, I still feel that need to talk to you. All East readers, let's do this thing. I hear the sound of your guitar Our years of playing together have created an efficiency in the studio from the Ideas tumble around the room Confusion often reigns you want me to play it up higher? No, don't play it up higher, okay. just don't play so low <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, hey. And then suddenly Let's get the claps you get the la da Dynamite Perfect. Perfect! I took all the sunshine and rain. Age brings perspective. All my happiness and all my face. And after all these years. The dark evening stars and the morning sky of blue. My friends, wherever you are. And I my letter to you. You're the reason we're here. Oh! I sent in my letter to you. All right, what can I say? The greatest thrill of my life is standing behind that microphone with you guys behind me.
4: Let's do it. Now, since this album is uh, focused on Springsteen and the early days, I uh, thought about uh, what is in the archives from those days, and I found a few stories. Many of us remember the week in 1975 when Bruce was on the cover of both Time and Newsweek. It was both a blessing and a curse, according to him. I don't think many people have heard Bruce discuss it in his own voice so here it is I used to think that like being on
1: time because I, I used to say oh that's bad man that was bad for me i you know it made me feel you know funny and uh, i don't know i just felt funny about it and then later i look back on i said no that was good because maybe somebody read a story and bought the record and the record meant something to him, and that was good you know what was bad was the was the way that mm-hmm. that that uh it was affecting my uh, The way that I let it, you know, get to me on certain levels, you know, and that that was my own fault, you know.
4: Now, here's a story from Bruce uh, about the time he went to Memphis and decided to go see Elvis at Graceland. Now, the story has been written about and Bruce discussed it in his book. But I think this may be the first time you're actually going to hear Bruce tell the story in his own words. This interview is from 1975, right after Born to Run came out. And Bruce had appeared on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and little Stephen was with him. And in fact, in those days, little Stephen was known as Miami Steve. That's how long ago it was. So let's play this. I got a chance
1: to when we went to Memphis because Bruce Jackson, the fellow that does our sound, did sound you know for Elvis for a long time. And we went up to went up to Graceland there, you know, and that was real. Uh,
6: this is this is recently
1: yeah this was yeah. a couple of weeks ago it, it's
6: true what you wrote in rolling stone that you tried to break you tried to sneak in there oh, that nah. time
1: yeah. yeah that time that was well that was like a two years before then you know yeah and it was just real late at night and we were looking for something to eat and we got in a cab with this uh you know got in a taxi cab and we said listen we want something to eat it was me and miami steve and yeah, I guess says, I know, I'll take you to Fridays. He says, No, we don't, we don't want like a hangout. We want like a, you know, some place where we're going to go and eat, you know. So he says, Well, there's a place out by Elvis's house. So we said, You mean we're going to go out by Elvis's house? He says, Yeah, there's a place out there. I said, Will you t- take me to Elvis's, like right now, <laughs> you know? So I says, Okay. So he says, You know, you guys celebrities? And we said, uh, yeah, yeah, we're celebrities, you know, <laughs> he says, uh, he says, uh, oh, oh that's crazy, can I tell, uh, and we told him who we were or something, and he says, can I tell my dispatcher that I got some celebrities in the cab, we said, sure, sure, so he gets on the thing, he says, hey, Joe, I got some celebrities in the cab, and the guy says, yeah, who you got there, he says, oh, I got, I got, and then he shoves the mic in my face, right? Because you don't know, you don't know who we are at all, you know. I say, "Oh, uh, Bruce Springsteen, Street Band, blah blah blah. We're from New Jersey, you know." And uh, he says, "Yeah, I got them, and we're going out to Elvis's. And this Patrick goes, "Damn!" Man. He thinks like we're going out to have like coffee with Elvis or something. <laughs> so we get out there, and I stood in front of them gates, and I looked up. He's got a big, long driveway, and I looked up, and I seen a light on. And I said. I got to find out if he's home, Steve, you know? I said, I just, I can't stand here. I got to find out if he's home. So I jumped over the wall <laughs> at a stone wall. I jumped over it and the cab driver's going, man, they got dogs. They got everything <laughs> in there, you know? You're going to get it, you know? You're going to like, you know, you're going to be in trouble. I said, I, I got to find out. So I jumped over and I ran up the driveway and there was nobody, you know? And I ran up to the front door I got to the front door and I knock, you know, and uh, now I, I see out of the woods. I see somebody watching me, you know, and uh, so I figure, well, I'm just gonna go over and I'm gonna tell this guy, you know, hello. And I came to see Elvis and whatever. <laughs> so I walk over towards the woods and now comes the security guy. And he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I came to see Elvis. I said, I'm in a band, you know, I play the guitar. You know. And he says, oh, oh he says, Well, Elvis ain't home, Elvis is in Lake Tahoe. I said, Are you sure? He says yeah. I says, yeah. I said, Well, if he comes back, I said, Tell him that you know I said, Tell him Bruce Springsteen, you know, and like he didn't know me from nobody, you know, like you know, Joe schmo you know. I was like I said, Listen, I said, you know, I said, Yeah, I said, you know, I was on Times, I, I was on Newsweek, you know and he says yeah sure <laughs> well, listen, you gotta go outside now, <laughs> so he took me down to the bottom of the gate and uh and uh just dumped me out
4: back onto the street.
5: Well, that's old Bruce. That's how Bruce sounded when you and I were hanging out, <laughs> yeah. and uh we were talking about well you said uh he's like
4: twenty one years old
5: yeah. And yeah. Miami Steve, uh, he's called that because even though he was born in Massachusetts, he was born Steve Lento, but his mother remarried a man named Van Zant and They moved to Jersey when he was seven. The reason he wears those bandanas is because he went through the windshield of a car and he has scars on his forehead. So he's always worn that because he was self-conscious and he was on tour with the Dovells. You remember from Philly? Sure, you can't the sit stomp. down and the Bristol stop. The kids from Bristol are sharp as a pistol when they do the Bristol Stomp. And when the tour ended, uh, they were in Miami and Steve went back to Jersey, still wearing those flowered shirts that one does in Miami. And that's how he got the nickname. But uh, what I love most about Miami little Stephen, is uh his Twitter presence, I think right behind David Crosby, he's, to me, uh, the most entertaining on Twitter. Hmm. Okay.
4: Yeah, he's great. Well, I was going to tell my Bruce story. Yes, it's, your uh, first sighting. It's, it's a little long, but I, I think it's interesting and I still think about it from time to time. So I, I saw Bruce when the first album came out and I became a fan instantly, you know, and then during the summer of 1975, it was 73 that I, I saw him. But in the summer of 75, I was in college, probably about 19 years old, I guess. And, um, and my college roommate's parents had a house on Long Beach Island. And for those who don't know, that's the heart of the Jersey Shore, okay, right below Atlantic City. So he tells me that I should come down for the summer. And then he has this place that used to be a popular club called Le Garage. Um, and uh, this is while I was in college. I had booked a few shows And uh, he wanted me to come down and help him run the club and book the acts, whatever. So I figured, hey, great. He's putting me up for the summer. I'm fine. See music every night. No problem. Chase women. okay. So uh, Le Garage was a nice little place that held about 350 people. And I would book shows a couple of nights a week. And there was no restaurant or bar, no liquor license. And and during the day, uh, the place was was empty and, you know, had those set up chairs and everything. One day I get a call from my friend and he says, uh, Bruce and the band are hanging out. Now, let me clarify this. I had a friend uh, who became Bruce's sound man and another friend, uh, Mark Britton, who became very well known as Bruce's lighting man. And they were doing uh, the concerts that I was doing. They hooked up with Bruce and they became his crew. Anyway, long story short, I got in touch with them. And they say to me, hey, you know, uh, Bruce is looking for a place to uh, rehearse. They're getting ready to, to, fit, you know, to, to release Born to Run, and they, they want to rehearse. And can we use your place? <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, that means we can sit there and watch. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. So, okay, Bruce and the band want to hang out for a few days. No problem. They can use the club, uh, whatever they want to do. So uh, I did say, though, that before you guys leave, Why don't you play some dates here at the club? Because believe it or not, I knew they needed the money. They were all broke. (laughs) So I got them to agree to play a Friday and Saturday, two shows each night, seven and 10 PM. Now, if you know anything about the Jersey shore, let me put it this way. You're dependent on New York and Philadelphia media for advertising. It's way too expensive to buy radio or TV out of those markets and the local newspaper. (laughs) There is none. It's a weekly. (laughs) So, the only way to advertise was hiring the planes, you know, that fly over the beach with the uh pennant behind them. So that's what we did. Plus my my friend who I was in, in the club with, uh, he owned all the ice cream trucks on the island. So we got to put posters on the ice cream trucks and they drove around and we figured, you know what, we'll get the word out one way or another. Now Bruce already had two albums out and he had a fan base in New Jersey. So we figured, you know, we get the word out and uh could work. We should be able to do pretty well. So the first show we sell about a hundred tickets. Okay. Second show, 10 p.m. that night, we sell about 250 tickets. That's Friday. Okay. Um, Saturday comes. First show, we draw just about a full house. And these were the days when Bruce would play two and a half, three hours. You know, so this was like a six-hour marathon concert. <laughs> Anyway, by the time of the final show on Saturday, word had spread. And not only did we sell out, we turned away 500 people. (laughs) It was unbelievable. So obviously we didn't make any money. We lost money. But boy, it was great. We had a party on the beach right afterwards for Bruce. And I remember Eddie Bergatti of the Rascals came because Bruce had invited him to the show. All these other Jersey characters who I don't know, didn't know at the time. I probably would know now. Anyway, I think it's a great story, and I still remember it. And-
5: well, the concert business is a cruel world. You know, that's <laughs> probably why the late Bill Graham and Larry Maggot and all those guys are always in such a foul
4: mood. <laughs> <laughs> hey, back in those days, uh, I mean, not that it's any easier now, but back then, it yeah. was anyway. Well, anyway, I think I can sort out
5: the genie, Janie, needs a shooter controversy, okay. if there is one, or at yeah. least... Uh, okay, so in June of 1976... Warren Zevon was opening for Steve Goodman at the main point in Bryn Mawr. And I was at the show that night. That's the night, the first night that I met Warren. And he told me that night that he had just been in Asbury Park a couple of nights ago. And he was writing a song with Bruce Springsteen. And he said it like in a bragging way. He was trying to impress me. And it worked, you know, (laughs) but in a later interview, everything he did worked, but okay. In a later interview, Warren said that he heard about the song from John Landau in 1976. He doesn't say how that happened, but he did say he was captivated by the title, but he misheard it uh, as "Genie." Okay. And then he says that he asked Bruce several times if he could hear the song. I don't know what on what occasions these were. Apparently Bruce said no, but- Just to shut down the discussion, uh, he gave Warren his blessing to write his own song using that title. So in 1979, Warren catches up with Bruce again and he plays him the song, which was a work in progress. And he reportedly said, Bruce reportedly said, I like it, but where's the rest of it? And Warren said, you tell me. So supposedly they wrote the remaining verses of Warren's Genie Needs a Shooter together. And Warren recorded it and put it on Bad Luck Streak and Dancing School. But that got Bruce thinking about the song. So in May of 79, Bruce and the band worked up an arrangement for Janie, but they never put it on the River album. Right. So there was that song that had nothing to do with the Warren Zevon song. So when, it, when the Warren Zevon fans heard that Bruce was going to include Janie Needs a Shooter, Mm. On the new album They got all right. excited But it's they're two totally different songs Okay, so question
4: Are the writing credits Zevon Springsteen?
5: Well, Bruce did not I, I don't believe he put Warren As a writing partner But Warren put Bruce As a right. writing partner okay. On his But I, I don't think Warren is credited On Bruce's album
4: For writing it
5: now Because he didn't write Any of
4: the lyrics That's, that's why you gotta listen To this show because you're not you going to hear the real story. Like
5: this, that's right, from the horses, out. from the horse's mouth. Right, right. And, <laughs> so and you anyway. have a story uh, from the big man, from Clarence, about the first time that he met
4: Bruce. They met for the first time in September 1971. At the time, Clarence uh, was playing with Norman Seldon and the Joyful Noise at the Wonder Bar in Asbury Park. It's that legendary place that you always hear about. Uh, and Norman Seldon was a Jersey Shore musician. He had a singer in the band named Karen Cassidy and Karen knew Bruce. She also knew Clarence, of course. And she told Clarence he needed to meet this guy Springsteen and encouraged him to check him out. The Bruce Springsteen band was playing at the nearby student Prince, the other legendary club in the Asbury Park. So let's have uh, Clarence tell the story.
3: i walked into this joint and, um, I was playing with Norman in a bar down the street. It goes back a little further, and I'll take you back a little bit. Karen Cassidy was a singer in uh, Norman's band. Norman was a, a Jewish guy with a big red afro, and uh, he, he did cover music, you know. We did cover, cover things. And uh, he took a chance for hiring me back in those days, in the 70s, a black man playing in this white band. And uh, a lot of people didn't hire him. But the music was so good and so strong, he says, we gotta, I got to do this. I to, he took a step, and that's what really impressed me with Norman, that he took the step to, to hire me in this band, because the music was good. And I know it wasn't really what I was looking for, but I was playing. It's what I wanted. I was playing in this soul band. Uh, we were playing at uh, Fort Mama. We are coming back, and the car breaks down in front of this bar, and I hear this music. Whenever I heard music, I wanted to play. So I took my horn and went into this place, and uh, there was Norman and uh, it had this girl singer named Karen Cassidy. Karen and I became good friends. Uh, Norman hired me. I left the Black Band, and uh, because it was just just wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't into that James Brown thing all all the time, all the time. I wanted some adventure. I wanted something new. Rock and roll was new to me, right? Because I grew up in a very religious background and very soulful music. And I got into the soul music and, but I wanted to rock. I was a rocker. I was a born rock and roll sax player. I mean, I started playing with Norman and, uh, but Norman was playing rock and roll, you know, and that's why I, I dug about it. And we were just cooking, man. And uh, this girl, Karen, is driving me. She says, I got this friend, you gotta meet him. You, got, you gotta you meet this guy. And she, every, every time we puts away. You gotta meet this guy, Bruce, 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 Bruce. I said, okay, okay, one day we're gonna meet him. And uh, about two months it took him before I had a chance to really meet him because I was always working and he was always working. And so we happened to be playing in Asbury Park at the same time. I played in a matinee and he was at the at the Wonder Bar, which was about three blocks north of uh, the Student Prince. Big Northeaster blew in and it started raining this night, and saying I was just leaving the club. And I, I walked down to the student prince, and it was, I mean, it was thunder and lightning, and uh, Bruce tells the story, that's it's really true. And uh, I walked into the club, over the door, and the wind actually tore the door out of my hand and blew it down the street. So all the bouncers go running down the street after the door, and I'm standing there with this lightning and thunder behind me, and I walk in. It's been a black guy walking to a white club. You know? I was like, whoa, wait a minute. And I walked over to, to Bruce, and I found, who, I found out who Bruce was. And I walked over and said, I want to sit in. He said, sure, you know, whatever you want to do. So I sat in, and it was a magical moment. I swear I have never, I will never forget that moment. And right now when I'm on stage with Bruce, I still feel that moment. It was something that all my answers, all the bands I played with, all the things I was searching for, and all the things I wanted to do was right there. Because he didn't play cover music. He was playing, He played all his original stuff, you know, and I loved it, man. It was, it was just so natural for me. It just felt like I was supposed to be there. It was like, it was a very magical moment. He looked at me, and I looked at him, and we fell in love. And that's, And that's still there. It's still there.
5: Well, Clarence was truly authentic, and it's great to hear his stories. He was so honest. He doesn't hold back, and uh, most people don't know. Uh, I, there was a documentary uh, about him, but most people don't know how spiritual uh, Clarence was at one, yeah, came, right. at one point in his life. In fact, I remember walking backstage, and at this point, they all had their separate dressing rooms, and I don't know what the name was. I believe it started with an M, but Clarence was actually going by his spiritual name, and that was the name on the dressing room door. And I thought, who's fill in the blank, you know, and they said, that's Clarence. That's the name he's going by now. I was like, okay, but he was funny and he was fun. So was Danny Federici, uh, who I got to know a little bit. I
4: was going to ask you to tell that, but before you do that, I think we should mention the rest of the band and just show you the difference because there haven't been a lot of members. But when I first saw him, I saw him with Vinny Lopez, who, believe it or not, is considered the founder of the band. Uh, Vinny Lopez was in the band, and David Sanchez, uh, Vinny was the drummer, David Sanchez, extraordinary keyboard player. And that was the band that I saw the first time. Now, the next time when I had him at the club in New Jersey, um, Vinny was gone, and uh, David Sanchez had brought in a friend of his named Boom Boom Carter. He only was around for a few months, but he happened to be the drummer that's on Born to Run on the record. Right. It's very unusual. There isn't one person, I believe, on that song, Born to Run, that's in the band today. So before we talk about Danny, let's just mention the other members uh, that have been in the band. Now, Vinny Lopez, when I first saw the band, Vinny Lopez was his drummer. And Vinny Lopez uh, really was the guy that decided uh, he had the band where they decided to have Bruce be the singer. So technically, you could say he was the founder of the band. But And Danny, I think, was the other uh, original guy there. Anyway, when I first saw them, Vinny was on uh, drums. David Sanchez, extraordinary uh, keyboard player, was on keyboards. Then the next time when we had him at the club in Jersey, David Sanchez was getting ready to leave. But before he brought in a friend of his, Boom Boom Carter, who's the drummer on the song Born to Run that's on the album. And he was the the drummer uh, during that period. And then, of course, uh, Max Weinberg came. And uh, Max had been in a band called Blackstone which had done one album uh, for Columbia. Otherwise, nothing much was happening. That's how he got in the band. And Roy Bitten became the piano player. And I think they both answered ads that were in the Village Voice. Right. Yeah, That's true. Happened. Yeah. Yes. But, but uh, Max did have some experience. So. Right. So uh, tell me some Danny stories. Okay. So
5: I met Danny in Philly in 1978. I went to the one of the two shows. I guess it was the first night in May that the band was in town. And I I wasn't even working at uh, a rock station yet. I think I was still working at an R&B station. So I met Danny and a girl that was with him that became, I think, his second wife, Amy. And Danny said, what is there to do in Philly tonight. And I said, well, (laughs) believe it or not, we can go dancing because in 1978, I know that sounds crazy, but disco was the rage. And I lived uh, in the Warwick Hotel and there was a club called Elan and they would have music playing and we went and danced
4: disco style, the three of us. I'll bet. I don't know if this is when you were there, but I I would go there occasionally too. right? And this is when Maury Povich was in town. Because he used to be there every single night. This is before he left. He was a newsman in Philly. No, before I know I he did I that know show. Mar- I know Mar- people very don't well. know, yeah. but I used to run into him all the time. Yeah.
5: No, that, well, um, it was, um, <laughs> you could get everything you wanted. It wasn't just yeah. a club to dance. So if Maury was going there, he was going there. The reason is we all went there <laughs> to give us the fuel yeah. to be able to dance the night away. So, you know, that fuel was often, uh, you know, chopped up into lines. <laughs> and we all, so yeah, I think that's what we were all doing there. I can't speak for Mari, but um there had to be some reason that you could dance all night.
4: <laughs> now, since you're talking about uh, uh Danny, I do have a clip. Uh he had some I uh, uh, got some advice from his father about being a musician. So let's play that. I think
2: what we've accomplished is just an amazing thing. My father used to say you better learn how to do something else cuz this rock stuff ain't gonna last. So it's just really amazing.
5: So uh, in 1980, when I was living in Los Angeles and I was working at KLOS, I got a call from Danny and he told me that Bruce was recording the river and he asked Danny to fly in, but he didn't get the call from Bruce. Somebody called him and said, Bruce wants you to fly in and do your parts for the river. So he asked me if I would come pick him up at LAX. So I got to the gate in the days where you could go to the gate and I turned to my left and there's Bruce. He's waiting for Danny. And this is in the days where in Los Angeles in 1980, Bruce could walk freely around with a headband and the whole denim look and nobody bothered him. Mm -hmm. So I walked over to Bruce and I told him who I was and I said I was there to pick up Danny, but I would leave if he wanted to pick up Danny. So I knew that would mean a lot to Danny. But he said, no, no, no. I'll go to the studio. You pick him up. He said, but you got to do something for me. I said, what? He said, you bring him right to the studio. No stopping. (laughs) <laughs> I don't want you to stop for anything. Did he have so, a bad it, habit of doing that? Yes. Uh yeah. Yes. Bruce really uh was against not, he wasn't against fun. I, I always make the joke that he was against fun, but he just, he, he was against, you know, because of his father, he didn't want to take a chance on seeing what he would become if he took a drink. So he never drank and he didn't want anybody in the band to, you know, show up incapacitated when it was so important to do your work. So when I got there, um, we walked in and Bruce walked over to me and he said, um, he said, I know you're a friend of Joyce. Joyce was a girlfriend of his at the time and she's going to kill me, but I know you're also a DJ and I can't let you stay. So let me walk you out to your car and we'll see you later.
4: Now, for those of us in the audience that don't know what that means, you need to explain that.
5: Well, I think he was afraid that, uh, I would get an exclusive, or you I would,
4: know if you could get away with it. You would have,
5: I, I guess, but it wasn't like I was <laughs> wired, you know. With a request, I wasn't, you know. So I mean, but I get it, you know. He had a lot of strict yeah. rules, and I'm sure one of them was no girls, and maybe. The other women were told they weren't allowed to go to the studio. Maybe they would have found out I was there. So who knows? All right. So he walked me out to the car and he said it wasn't personal, blah, blah, blah. But then we all showed up at the Sunset Marquee. That's where they were staying. Mm. And uh, Danny and I had so much fun. We took a photo of us because his wife wasn't with him. And uh, we'll put it on the website of me and Danny taking a picture of us in a a mirror. It was like a selfie, but uh, saying hi. And yeah, he was just a a really great guy. I saw him not too long before he died. And he was very happily married and uh, kind of on top of the world. And it's just so sad. It really is because uh, anybody I think that ever met him misses him. Yeah,
4: You know, uh, Danny uh, had a big influence on Clarence uh, because Clarence came into the band uh, after Danny and when I was interviewing Clarence and uh, this was when he had his autobiography, Big Man, Tall Tales, whatever it's called. Uh, we were doing uh, an interview around that uh, the book and it was right after Danny passed. OK, so that was I think it was April uh, 2008 is mm-hmm. when Danny passed. Correct. He talked about it and we were in his hotel room in Los Angeles and I was asking him all sorts of stuff. And he starts talking about Danny. And he starts going into how Danny had an influence on him and the whole thing. And right near the end of the comment, the doorbell rings to his hotel suite. Well, you got to hear
3: what he says. Here it is. Danny was like my son. Danny did everything first, including dying. I mean, he did... I mean, the first time I had any kind of drug relationship was with Danny. And uh, the first time I did... Anything that's crazy, I did it with Danny. We had a little thing going, you know, in between songs that we used to do. I miss him so much. I mean, for the first few gigs, and still right now, I, I it's hard for me. I, I I really like Charlie. Charlie's doing a great job, but man, when Danny was there, it was it was something different, you know. It was something different, and uh, I, and I do miss that. There he is again. Okay,
4: Danny, we'll be right there. Once again, Clarence Clemens uh, on the death of Danny. And, um, you know, I asked Clarence uh, if he hadn't gotten into music, what he would be doing. And this is what he had to say.
3: I'd probably be in jail for killing Mad Dog Lopez. (laughs) No, I don't know. I I, I was probably been a a teacher or a preacher. I have a very strong belief in God and, and... Spirituality, although in, in this business it gets taxed, but I never go too far away from it because I really believe that uh, when you put something positive into the to the world, something comes back positive to you. And what we do is very important, you know. I, I, rock and roll to me is very serious because we deal with the young people, we deal with people who who need something, you know, and that's what the same thing that preacher does. He feeds you something that you need spiritually and your soul and in your in your makeup. And when we go on that stage every night I know that somebody out there is getting something for it. I don't know if people tell tell me that, man, you know, with the songs you guys played or you did this and I was going through this in my life and I throw on Bruce Record and then everything was all right, you know. And to be a part of that was, was very my my part in this i I took very seriously and uh and I say a prayer every night before I go on stage. My, my dress room is called the Temple of Soul. And I, I do say a prayer, a silent prayer, that my, what, tonight in me, what I do helps somebody's life. I know somebody out there needs to be fed something positive. And so I go out there and I sweat my balls off and I play my heart out and to, to, to put this energy of positiveness in the world. And it's just the biggest joy for me, man. I can't tell you how much you know I, how much I appreciate what I do, how much I appreciate Bruce, and uh, and and how I appreciate how much I appreciate the band because we are a very special group of people, and uh, I and I love what we do.
5: So we must acknowledge because we were talking about all the band members, uh, Gary Talent, of course. Uh, hugely talented. (laughs) And then of course, Nils Lofgren, who I happened to be hanging out with when he got the call that he was going on tour. He knew he was going to be in the band, but he uh, was in Philadelphia, uh, recording a solo album and he was under the gun to get it done before the band went out on the road and uh, he forgot to get a passport so I had to drive Nils to the passport office so he could get his passport so he could travel with Mm. the E Street band and then he went up to uh, Jersey and he uh, called me one rainy night and begged me to come up there and um, we met in the bar of the hotel that he was staying in where they had a piano and I tried to talk him through some of the songs (laughs) and the difference between prove it all night and driving all night and being (laughs) he was really he was in over his head a little bit but of course he was such a great asset to that band and just such a wonderful guy and i don't know whether bruce knew that uh nils could sing so well i guess he did but he hired patty because he really wanted to focus on harmonies and who knows uh if nils would have, you know, sung a little louder. (laughs) No, I'm sure he would have hired Patty. But those are the three missing pieces uh, to what made everything just perfect.
4: So uh, I want to give credit where credit is due.
5: Uh, Absolutely. Gary,
4: Gary talent, by the way, as a side thing, you know, he's a very well established producer. Most people don't know that he's produced a couple of really good albums, Uh, a couple of Steve Forbert albums, and then an album by a group that never happened, but it's one of my favorite albums. And I don't know how I got the gig to do it. It was a band called the Archangels. And I believe Doyle Bramhill was in that band. That's the guitar player that's now in Eric Clapton's band. They were an right. amazing band out of Austin, Texas. And he produced their first album. He's done some other stuff. So he doesn't get much, much credit for that kind of stuff. And then I also want to mention, uh, because she was such an integral part of the band on the Born to Run album was Suki Lahav, who plays that unbelievable violin on Jungle Land. And she was the wife of Louis Lahav, who was the engineer on the album. So that's how she got in the band. Anyway, we want to make sure we cover all the bases, because you get all the info on this show.
5: Right? <laughs> and people know, and they're listening. So they're, they're paying attention.
4: I think we should do something for Max Weinberg. Uh, And this is a great story. And this is, uh, I'm not sure how many years ago this was, but it was probably in the late 80s, maybe mid 80s. Anyway, I was going through the archives. I found this. And um, as you probably know, Max is a big Beatles fan and a big Ringo fan. Uh, In fact, he got to know Ringo when he interviewed him for the book he wrote several years ago called The Big Beat. And then he was in Ringo's all-star band for a while. And he talks about what happened Uh, during an Australian tour when the band played Twist and Shout.
7: Well, you know, it's funny. I guess when you're inside something and you're doing it, you don't really think of how other people perceive you. But I'll tell you something that happened recently on our Australian tour. We played in uh, Brisbane in the pouring rain. To 60,000 people and it was uh, there were no seats so everybody was packed in like sardines and uh, we were playing twist and shout and at one point twist and shout Bruce raised his hands and and started shaking them above his head and everybody in the place picked their hands up and started shaking them and because they were so tight they couldn't get them back down so they were shaking their hands and I looked around at the band I looked at Ryan I looked at Clarence and I got this like incredible rush where I felt I felt like that must have been what it must have been like to be in the Beatles because the people were going completely crazy we in the band were going completely crazy we couldn't believe how how they looked you know we were all I mean I remember Bruce looking at me like with this expression like do you believe what is happening out there it was it was amazing it was so much fun and that's what the Beatles were to me they were fun and and You know, my heart started to really pound. Uh, I got incredibly excited. It was one of the most exciting things that ever happened to me on stage. I've done a thousand shows with Bruce, the band, and that really stands out as, wow, that must have been a little bit of what that was like. Okay,
4: let's talk about Little Steven. Uh, Not just the E Street band, but his uh, underground garage radio thing, his solo band, his acting career course a lot of people know him from the sopranos lily hammer a few other things uh, i don't know where to start i i need it do you have any favorites of stevens and then we'll talk something uh, uh, about bruce's albums uh, well i just love that he's been with the same woman since day
5: one she's wonderful and uh, they they post lots of great stuff together and uh looks like a great relationship so i love that about him
4: what are your favorite, uh, don't do the popular ones. Tell me some okay. of your favorite Bruce songs that might not be the hits.
5: Oh, that maybe aren't on everybody's radio. Okay, well, I have always loved Downbound Train. I've I just for me it's just so moving every single time those lyrics of Downbound Train for me you know I just you know when he goes back to the house and through the yard and the house was empty and it was and he hears the long whistle whine I mean yeah you know I just that song to me is like right up there for me I've often wished it was more finished at the end because at the end it's sort of like you know it just kind of plays out and I would I don't know whether he had a Another chorus for that or not, but Downbound Train, to me, is a, is just one of the best songs. And from his solo album, of course, he called it a solo album, Tunnel of Love, but, you know, Roy's on it, Nils is on it, Danny's on it, you know, So I get, and Max is on every song. So I guess it's a solo album, but um, I don't see how. Anyway, I thought Brilliant Disguise um, and Tunnel of Love, but Brilliant Disguise, I just think, is mm. one of his best songs. And One Step Up um, I think is again, just another amazing song uh, that. And that one, one wasn't recorded in his home studio. Like the rest of tunnel of love, he went to A&M in Los Angeles and he played all the instruments. Patty was the only other one in there. And there's Patty singing the backing vocals for a song about the breakup of Bruce's marriage to Julianne Phillips. <laughs> and that may be why he rarely performed it live. Uh, after the 1988 tunnel tour. Mm. And I noticed that on dates that Patty, because I was going through YouTube watching a lot of great performances, and I and I was looking for that specific song. And I noticed that he tends to play some of those songs from the tunnel tour when Patty isn't with the band that night, like some nights, she'd be doing something with the kids, and she wasn't right. there. And he did play it in 2005. And he did play it in 2014. But he could play it every show for my, my money. What about okay. you?
4: Well, um, I, I'm partial once again to the to the first couple of albums. Uh, I, you know, I love "Spirit in the Night." Uh, does this bus stop? You know, um, oh gosh, the uh, incident on Fifty uh, Seventh Street on the uh, you know Spanish Johnny uh, just blows me away every time. I mentioned "Spirit in the Night," "Blinded by the Light," which of course Manfred Man covered. Oh, worst cover ever!
5: Worst. Uh, co- and Bruce, then, do, wait, have you ever seen Bruce do, do Storytellers? I, I'm sure he I ma- have. Okay, and he makes fun. Of yeah, the, he did, I, yeah. You know why? Because they sang it a douche instead of deuce, right? A douche, right. And he don't he thought that they were singing about some sort of feminine hygiene product. That's the worst cover that I've well, ever heard.
4: I gotta um, tell you, I don't think Bruce was uh feeling bad when he got his first royalty check because well, I, don't know, out I, I,
5: I don't really think it makes it that big of a difference. I just read that autobiography again, and um he should have cared more about money. Let's put it that way. He, he a lot of stuff would have happened if he if he'd cared more about money, but I think to make up for the cover is uh, David Bowie's cover of Growing Up. I don't
4: know if you're familiar with that, but that oh, yeah, is. Sure. All right. That's now, stellar. Okay. Now, here's the last one I'm going to mention. is my favorite Bruce Springsteen song, Not Written by Bruce. Do you know which one I'm going to say? Not Written by Bruce? <laughs> yeah. Your
5: favorite Bruce Springsteen <laughs> song, Not Written by Bruce?
4: <laughs> that's right. It's called Jersey Girls.
5: Oh, Tom Waits. Jersey right. Girl. But
4: it's Jersey Girl.
5: Singular, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, no, but of course. Of it's a course. Bruce
4: Springsteen song, not written by well, Bruce.
5: It, it, it's a Tom Waits song that definitely was screaming for Bruce to cover. Absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> okay. You're right. absolutely right. And and I think that when he used to do it in concert, it was one of those moments where, you know, because there'd be like slow dancing in the mm-hmm. audience, mm-hmm. especially, you know, when he was in Jersey, he would do it. And it was just sort of his... Um, way of making every single woman in that room feel special, which he does very, very well. So when he starts singing about, he doesn't want this and he doesn't want that because he's got his Jersey girl. And then he kind of upped the ante after he was with Patty, you know, because I can remember when he was married to Julianne Phillips, this is, I shouldn't be laughing about this because this, I mean, I know she's a millionaire now and she's probably very happy, but when he used to bring her up on stage to dance with her, the whole audience would boo. Everybody would boo. Well, isn't that because they
4: thought he went Hollywood? Yes. <laughs>
5: And it wasn't like we all got together and said, when Bruce brings Julianne on stage, let's all boo. It was a visceral reaction from all of us that when he brought, it was how we felt about it. I don't think we expected the whole play. It was embarrassing and it was terrible, but oh well.
4: (laughs) Okay, so before I forget, I I do want to play this uh, bit from Little Steven. He was, he's a real musician. I mean, this guy, when he was growing up, he, you know, he's talking about, I'm with this clip, talks about, you know, the people that he saw to help develop his musical style and everything. But you know, this guy saw Hendrix and he used to go to the Fillmore and he saw cream. And anyway, he, he saw Led Zeppelin at the Schaefer music fair in New York. That had to be 69. Play this from little Steven.
2: saw them first at the Schaefer. I think there was like, you know, a hundred, maybe 200 people in, a, in like a, Closed-down skating rink, whatever it was. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't It wasn't like, I don't remember it being that crowded. You know, in those days, you know, people had a the whole different... I saw Jimi Hendrix in a, in a high you know, college gym. There were not any big, real, real big venues. I mean, the Fillmore East was uh, the most sort of formal, that was th- the top of the line. But that was the biggest sort of venue you played, and then that was, what, 2,500 seats or whatever, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you you saw these groups in, in very small places in those days, and they had much more impact on you, now, you know. And, you know, and, and you weren't that conscious of the sound. I mean, it was all so new. I mean, the fact that it was outside, you know, who knows what it actually sounded like. But we were impressed, you know, because it was just seeing these English guys uh It was still exotic. You know, the whole British invasion thing had still lingered on, you know, even through folk rock and everything else. It had come full circle by then with uh, Cream and then Jeff Beck Group and then Led Zeppelin. The whole hard rock thing had now taken another evolution. And so it was all exciting again, that English stuff. So it was just exciting to see them.
4: So I want to talk about the fact that Bruce Springsteen was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist and it wasn't until two thousand fourteen that's fifteen years later that the East Street band was inducted, and Bruce is the one that inducted them so I know there's a lot of politics involved what's your take on that Well,
5: I never quite understood that because you're you're talking about something that's so um, organic and spiritual like music, and then you're making all these corporate rules and uh you're you're you know, casting people out and voting people in, I feel like it should be totally inclusive. I think that they should celebrate everyone who's ever picked up a guitar and sold a record. I just don't understand what the nitpicking is about and what the power trips are about. I don't think I ever will. And I know Bruce tried to explain uh why he thought, you know, it had to happen that way and what the rules were in his autobiography, but I still really don't get it.
4: Yeah, and he he tried to explain it in his uh, induction speech.
8: And tonight I stand here with just one regret. And
4: uh, that's that Danny and Clarence
8: aren't here with us tonight. Um, uh, Sixteen years ago, a few evenings before my own induction, I stood in my darkened kitchen along with Steve Van Zandt, Steve was just returning to the band after a 15-year hiatus and he was petitioning me to push the Hall of Fame to induct all of us together. And I listened and the Hall of Fame had its rules and I was proud of my independence. We hadn't played together in 10 years. We were somewhat estranged we were just taking the first small steps of reforming. And we didn't know what the future would bring. And perhaps the shadow of some of the old grudges still held some sway. It was a conundrum because we'd never been quite fish nor fowl. And Steve was, was quiet but persistent. And at the end of our conversation... He just said, yeah, yeah, I understand. But Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, that's the legend. Yeah. So I'm proud to induct into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the heart-stopping, pants-dropping, hard-rocking, booty-shaking, love-making, earth Viagra-taking, justifying, death-defying, legendary, E Street.
4: So there you have it. That's what happened on, uh, on that particular day. And then the E Street Band performed Kitty's Back and the E Street Shuffle at the Rock Hall Ceremony. So the commercial that uh,
5: Bruce did for the Super Bowl was not his first.
4: No. I uh, I went into the archives again and uh, I found something that's pretty interesting. Bruce, uh, he, you know, because Philly was a big city for him. And so, you know, New York was a big city also. But that's really where he broke out before the, the Born to Run album. And he used to uh, go on the radio station and, and play DJ. And uh, on one of the tapes, which I got from a friend of mine, Ed Shockey, big Bruce booster, Bruce... Wanted to read the commercials. Oh, this is what we ended up with. This is Bruce Springsteen, believe it or not, doing a wine commercial. And this is from, I guess, 74, maybe?
6: Suntory Acadama. No, just start here. Oh, feel free to ad lib. No, no. Right. Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> there are lots of ways you can enjoy Acadama red wine. You can drink it chilled. You can drink it on the rocks with ice and soda. You can pour it all over your face. A Akadama red wine makes a fine sangria, it says right here. You can own one square of English earth. Oh, wrong commercial. A uh, Akadama red wine and orange juice is one of the better ways to start the day. Goes great with apple juice. Yeah. Ginger ale. Yeah. That's all they have time for anyway. How am I doing, fellas? It's good. It's pretty it's good. good. All right. you Instead that. of co- In <laughs> only <long, laughs> halfway through the commercial, yeah, been, that's all the <laughs> time they paid for. Must so read. Just, it says read here at so the bottom. Read These guys are going to be mad. Uh, Acadama wines are imported. Oh, this part. And don't forget to pass the Academa... Meme. They spelled, they spelled it wrong. They spelled it wrong. It's imported by Suntory International. They used to be one of our sponsors. Uh, what better authority on wine than Bruce Springsteen to surprise us here? You, you've drunk a, a bottle of wine in your time, Bruce. No, I hate wine. You don't like wine? Yeah. Okay.
5: Well, yeah, that's from uh, Ed Shockey uh, and his show on WMMR. And when I was rereading the autobiography, it really touched me, uh, when Bruce, uh, wrote about DJs and, um, Here's just a little bit of what he wrote. As the city slept alone, there he sat alone, accompanied by only shelves and shelves of the greatest music you'd ever heard. The DJ was your friend. He understood you. You shared the secret of the true things that were really important in your life, the music. They were human bridges to the world that was unfolding inside your head. They chronicled your changes as records came and went, inspiring you to keep listening for that one song that was going to change your life. And I was like, that's why I became a DJ. (laughs) You know, I just took my breath away. And in the book, of course, um, Bruce mentions Ed, who he stayed with occasionally when he was in Philly. Uh, David Dye, who walked into that empty uh, main point and said, wow, you know, (laughs) that he was also at MMR. Kid Leo from Cleveland. He'd call Richard Near from WNEW in New York. He'd call him in the middle of the night when Richard was on just to chat. And uh, yeah, that was, that just really warmed who,
4: my heart. Who as, in LA a was, the, was the big uh, pro- proponent of. Uh, it took a while out here. It yeah, took a while. No, there's no LA. singular person associated <laughs> with that. Right?
5: You know, there probably is, but I don't know who that was. And they were after the East coast. Yeah. Because, yeah, the yeah. Because uh, the shows here were not the kind of shows that I saw Bruce do. And, you know, when he was like in, at the spectrum and stuff, but you know, still not a lot of Bruce out here. You you know, I live in Los Angeles Then there are not, you don't hear Bruce on the radio. He's not. Yeah. I think a lot of the times when he lived out here, he enjoyed the fact that he wasn't the biggest star out here because you'd see him around, he'd ride his motorcycle, you know, and he had to get out of the way of the bigger star that was coming out of the restaurant,
4: you know, that people were tripping <laughs> over. So,
5: but I think he liked that
4: because
5: yeah. there's always a bigger star
4: out here, you know? Well, I know we will discuss uh, Bruce and the boys on a future show. So I want to thank everybody for joining us. Uh, If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, check out our website, contact us at therockpodcast.com.
5: And you can follow us on Insta, Instagram and Twitter at therockpodcast.
4: So check out our website, talk about more till next time. Adios.